Well, good morning, and I want to welcome everyone again uh, to worship here at Southwinds. We're so glad you're here. Uh, before we get started, do want to recognize that today is a significant day as 9-11, 15 uh, years after um, uh, that awful day in our nation's history. And we do want to encourage uh, each of us to uh, take time to remember those who've suffered uh, because directly because of what happened on that day and, and also to uh, continue to ask God's uh, grace and protection for our nation uh, as we trust in him uh, to be uh, the kind of people that he would call us to be. Uh, today uh, is the final week of our series that we've called Awesome, a series where we have been learning about what it means to have a healthy fear of God. And before we dive into this message, I have a couple more things I want to uh, say to you. Besides encouraging you to be back here for our picnic uh, right after this service, you can head over to Dr. Powers Park. Uh, besides encouraging you to take part in baptism, if you haven't uh, been baptized, we'd like to help you with that. And uh, if you have been, we'd encourage you to come and witness and just rejoice with those who are taking that step. I also want to encourage you to make sure you're here next Sunday because next Sunday is going to be a special day as well. We're starting a new series. That series is going to be called Squad Goals, and you'll have to come back uh, to find out what it's about. And then in addition to that, on uh, the next Sunday during each of the services, I'm going to be doing a brief interview with a missionary church planner pastor from India. Uh, his name is Mohan, and I'm not even going to try to say his last name because I'll probably not say it correctly. Uh, but Mohan was our, uh, our host uh, during part of our stay in India last year when Dan and I took that trip. And uh, we're looking forward to, to hearing about what God's doing uh, in and around the city of Mumbai. It's 20 plus million people. And uh, we, we hope that uh, you will be here to hear that and have a chance to meet with him maybe if you'd like to on the courtyard between services. So it's going to be a great Sunday. Uh, hope you'll be here for all of that. Well, if your Bibles aren't open yet, I encourage you to get them open to the book of Revelation, which is the last uh, book in the whole Bible, and chapter 20, which is close to the last chapter in the book of Revelation. We're going to be reading uh, some verses from that in just a moment. Today's message is called The Last Thing You Should Fear. We've been talking about the fear of God, and our subject today is the subject of hell. Now, now that you've heard that, now that you know that, I wonder if anyone feels a little nervous about this subject. I have to tell you, as we start off, I kind of do. Uh, some of you might be feeling a little nervous as you hear this because uh, you've brought a family member or a friend to Southwinds for the first time. <laughs> and you've probably already kind of told them about the kind of church we are. You've probably said things like, you know, Southwinds is a pretty relaxed place. And it's not one of those places, you know, where, where the pastor, you know, screams and yells and freaks everybody out. And now, now you're kind of worried that Pastor Mike uh, is about to go all sinners in the hands of an angry God on everybody. <laughs> maybe, maybe you're here and you're a little nervous because you've been exploring the Christian faith for a while. And there's a lot of things you like about Jesus, but hell is not one of those things. Hell is maybe one of the things that's kept you from crossing the line and embracing Jesus. You just don't get it. It's, it's like this idea, and you wonder how modern people can still believe in such a primitive idea. And you know, for you to just bring this whole thing up today, it feels kind of like you know, you're just hearing about everything you don't like about Christianity. 
And then there may be some of you here and you're not interested in Christianity at all. In fact, the only reason you're here is someone twisted your arm and dragged you here. And maybe you think that hell is just like the perfect example of everything that's wrong with religion. It's, it's how religious people try to control and coerce people through fear. You think it's hateful and intolerant. And this is exactly why you don't want anything to do with God, anything to do with religion. Well, hell is a tricky subject. And I will just be honest with you, it's not something I'm really excited to be talking about. I have never looked forward to preaching about hell. I would much rather talk to you about how Jesus sets people free from their sins, how Jesus embraces the outcast, how he serves the poor. I'd much rather talk to you about the grace and the mercy and the kindness of the love of God. I mean, actually, if you're the sort of person who enjoys talking about hell, then you are a warped and twisted individual. We don't talk about hell because we want to. We talk about hell because we need to. We've been talking about this kind of unfamiliar concept for four weeks now, this idea of the fear of God that the people in our modern culture don't talk about too often. And I've told you a couple of times that the fear of God is mentioned over 150 times in the Bible, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. That shows us it's a very important topic according to the Bible. We are supposed to fear God. We are commanded to fear God. And one of the reasons that we are commanded to fear God is that God is the one who determines our eternal destiny. He is the one that we will answer to. And so it would be foolish for us not to approach God with fear. Now, I know that some of you hear even that, and you're still thinking, well, I just believe it's wrong to, you know, scare people into hell. I think we should never, ever do that. I think that we should always just use love to motivate people. Here's my response uh, to that, that idea. My response is, well, you should probably take your opinion up with Jesus. And here's why I say that. This is how Jesus talks about the fear of God and how he connects it to hell in Luke chapter 12, verses four and five. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, again, this is Jesus talking. This is not some wild-eyed Old Testament prophet, you know, calling down plagues from heaven. This is Jesus. This is judge not lest you be judged. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Jesus. Jesus is the one who's connecting fear of God with hell. And you may be surprised when you find out that most of the information that we have about hell actually comes from Jesus. You may be surprised that, to find out that Jesus actually talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And if Jesus thinks that hell is a real possibility for some people, doesn't it make sense that it is also something that, that we should take seriously? Again, I know this doesn't feel good for some of us because it just messes with our picture of God. You know, for 21st century Americans, this whole idea of hell just makes God seem angry and vindictive. And, and we're not sure, some of us, we're not sure that we could actually believe in a God who would send people to hell. 
Could that kind of God actually be good? Could he actually be loving? You know, I really love the image that we've chosen for this series, which is, of course, drawn from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. It's this image that's made to, uh, meant to make us think of Aslan, the lion. And, in, you know, in that first week of the series, I told you about the scene in that first book when the children are finding out about Aslan, the lion. They're talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And now that they've heard that he's a lion, they're afraid. And one of the children asks, was he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Of course he's not safe. He's the king, I tell you, and he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. See, that's the question I want us to look at today. How can God be both unsafe and good at the same time? See, the Bible is crystal clear. God is love. 1 John 4, 7 is just one of many examples. But the same guy who wrote those words, God is love, is also the guy who's writing the words we're about to read today, the words that are about hell. The Bible is clear that the God of love is also a God of judgment. And so we need to know, how do these two things go together? How can someone say unequivocally that God is love and also there is a hell? Can we really do that? Well, let's begin uh, reading in Revelation 20. If you're not there, go ahead and get there. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15 is where uh, we're going to take our message today. And this is what the Apostle John writes. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, you hear me say this regularly, but uh, if you really want to understand any passage of Scripture, it's always vital that you look at the context, what comes before, what comes after. And what is being described in this part of Revelation is the end of the world. Actually, it's kind of the beginning of the world. What's happening is the old world has come to an end and a new world is about to be created. And Jesus is deciding what comes from the old world into the new world. This is what it says in the verse that immediately follows what we just read. Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed Way. Jesus, as king, is, is looking at everything that has happened all throughout history, and he is rendering his final verdict on everyone who has ever lived. He is saying, This comes into the new world, and he is saying, Well, this is excluded. He knows that if he brings certain things into the new world, they will, they will poison it. And, and so he says, These things, they cannot come. This is a very sobering scene. Actually, it's so terrifying that in verse 11, it says the universe itself tries to escape, but there's no place to go. Earth and sky try to flee. And John uses this image of a lake of fire to describe the fate of everyone who doesn't make it into the new world. Now, before we go too far, I want to take a moment to clear up a misconception about the, the lake of fire. 
I believe the Bible teaches clearly that hell is a literal place, but whether or not there's literal fire in hell is actually not really the point. Like many things in the book of Revelation, fire symbolizes a deeper reality. The Bible doesn't teach that hell is a fiery pit at the center of the earth. Fire, you need to see, is an image of what hell will feel like. I think a more literal description of hell is found in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, where the apostle Paul describes it like this. He says that, that hell is being shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. See, fundamentally, hell is being cut off from the presence of God. That means that you are cut off from the source of everything that's good, all life and joy and beauty and truth and goodness. You're cut off from everything that makes life worth living. In this life, I don't know if you ever stopped to think about this, but none of us are ever fully cut off from God. No matter what you do, no matter how far you run from God, God is still present in this broken, fallen world in such a way that we still always have at least glimpses of beauty and life and joy and goodness. But in hell, all of that is gone. Hell is such a horrifying experience that the writers of Scripture have to almost reach out and grasp at images just trying to convey how bad it really is. Images like fire and and darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth, just trying to get at and help us see how, how bad it would be to be completely cut off from the presence of God. So we need to ask ourselves, what, what does it mean about God that he would do something like this, that, that he would exclude some people from the joy of his presence? And I want you to see something today that will be very surprising to some of you. I want you to see that the reality of hell actually reveals something about the goodness of God. Hell actually shows us something of how good God is. There's three things I'm going to point out to you uh, that help us see that. Hell shows us, first of all, how good God is because hell shows us how seriously God takes people, how seriously God takes people. Now, most passages in the Bible record for us scenes that, that happened, you know, long time ago in places far away from us. But what's interesting about Revelation 20, 11 through 15 is that this is a scene that you and I will experience firsthand. You will be there. I will be there. Look what it says. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and each person was judged according to what he had done. John is telling us everyone who has ever existed will be there. You and I will be present. No one is exempt from judgment. Every one of us will stand before God. Now, why is that? Well, it's because, first of all, human beings have a special role in God's world. God does not line up all the lions and blue jays and guinea pigs to judge them. God doesn't keep records of the actions of Labradors and kangaroos. Only people are present for judgment because only people receive from God a special assignment. We find out about that at the other end of the Bible, the beginning of the Bible. We go to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and you read the story of creation, and we're told that God created all people to be image bearers. In other words, to be people who reflect his character, to be people who imitate their creator, to join God in what he is doing. And because we are created in the image of God, 
And we are also told in Genesis that we are rulers, that we are kings and queens over God's creation. In other words, God gave us responsibility for his world, and that is a very high calling. And this is important, and this is kind of a principle of life that I think we all understand, basically, that greater responsibility leads to greater consequences when that responsibility is misused. See, if I I go on vacation and I ask you to mow my yard and you forget to do it and I come back and the grass is too long, I'm going to be a little annoyed, but it's not the worst thing in the world. But if I lend you my car and you wreck my car, I'm going to be a little more upset, right? There's more serious consequences. You're going to need to pay for the damages. But if I let you watch my kid and you take my kid to the mall and you lose my kid... Well, the consequences just got real intense, right? See, God didn't just ask us to mow his yard or he didn't just let us drive his car. God gave us his world, the world that he created, the the world that he loves. See, human beings matter. Our actions and our decisions, our behavior, they matter to God. What we do is important. You would have to have a very low view of humanity and of yourself to think that your sin doesn't affect anything or anyone around you. God doesn't have that low view of humanity. He takes us very seriously. And for that reason, that's why when we make decisions that go contrary to God's ways, uh, God lets us reap the consequences of those decisions. See, one of the things that this means is that God won't force someone to be with him who doesn't want to be with him. Heaven is a place where God is. And if you don't want to be with God, then he's not going to make you come to heaven. I think one of the, one of the things that people often misunderstand about heaven is they tend to think of heaven as like the, the pleasure factory. It's, it's the place where all your wildest dreams and desires come true. You know, it's like if you're into the outdoors, you're going to get to hunt and fish and hike, you know, for all eternity, and it'll always be great. And maybe you just want to relax. So for you, heaven's going to be sitting on a beach in a chair with a mixed drink for all eternity. You know, and, and maybe, maybe you just want to You just want to eat cupcakes and bacon for all eternity. Maybe you want to put bacon on those cupcakes. And you're just going to be able to do that. And it's going to be awesome. Whatever you want to do, that's going to happen. But that's not how the Bible describes heaven. See, the Bible simply describes heaven as the place where God lives. Look at Revelation 21, verse 3. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You see, the difference between heaven and hell is not the difference between pleasure and pain. It's the difference between life with God and life without God. And if you're not someone who enjoys God, then you won't enjoy heaven. Maybe you could think of it this way. What if I told you that I had purchased some concert tickets and I was going to give them to you for free? You know, if you're a fan of music, you're probably thinking right now, well, great, that sounds wonderful. What if I told you that actually these tickets came with backstage VIP passes? You're going to meet the artist, get to hang out after the show. I mean, what do you think about that? Now you're thinking, this is really cool. Um, You know, I, I can't wait. And then what if I told you that the, the artist doing the concert was Justin Bieber. 
See, some of you are like, yes, let's go right now. And you are a 12-year-old girl. Um, and others of you, others of you, others of you are like, how much, how much do I have to pay you to avoid this fate? You see, God is a lot like Justin Bieber. He is a polarizing figure. And yes, I may be the first pastor in all history to compare God to Justin Bieber. Congratulations, you were here for that experience. You see, some people love God, and some people want to do everything they can to avoid being in his presence. Maybe another way to think about it is this. You know, for some people, being in a non-smoking environment is appealing. You know, you don't smoke, so you think, I want to breathe fresh air. I don't want to breathe secondhand smoke, so I don't want to, and I want to be where there's no smoking. But, but others of you smoke. Uh, some of us may have a nicotine addiction, and so for you, if that's you, a non-smoking environment is not a comfortable place. For you to actually experience you know, what you want, you have to actually leave that environment and get your fix. And maybe you could consider that heaven is a little bit like that. See, there's a lot of things that are going to be excluded from heaven. Things like pride and greed and grudges and violence and selfishness. And if you can't live without those things, then you're going to be really uncomfortable in heaven. If you're addicted to sin like most of us are, and heaven will be a very unpleasant place. As odd as it sounds, everyone in hell has opted out of heaven. I think maybe C.S. Lewis put this in the most uh, profound way when he wrote these words. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All who are in hell choose it. See, when, when God sends people out of his presence, in reality, he's giving them exactly what they want. And it's not maybe that they want hell, but they don't want to live with God. And God allows them to reap the consequences of the self-destructive choices they've made. You see, hell shows us just how seriously God takes people. And there's a second way that hell shows us God's goodness. Why don't you write this down? Hell shows us how seriously God takes evil. Now, again, it's important to see the context, to understand what's happening in Revelation 20. And let me describe it this way. King Jesus is sitting on the throne, and, and he is finally going to make a call about everything that has ever happened in history. He is finally going to fulfill what, what is one of the deepest desires in every human heart. It's in your heart. And that desire is to find and experience true justice in this world. Jesus is going to look at all the evil and all the injustice that's ever happened, and he will call it for what it is once and for all. He will declare good to be good and evil to be evil, and everyone will know it. For the very first time ever in history, a perfectly unbiased judge will declare what's right and declare what's wrong. And this is why the image of the books is so important. In Revelation 20, verse 12 says, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And these books, they actually symbolize a reliable record of what has happened in each of our lives. 
See, on that day, for the first time ever, there will be no spin, there will be no lies, there will be no deception, only truth, only truth. And no one is going to be able to say on that day when Jesus brings everything to light, they're not going to be able to say, Jesus, you missed something. Jesus, you could have done this better. Jesus, I want to make an appeal. Everyone will shut their mouth. Everyone will say, this is justice. But in order to do this, Jesus will have to get angry. See, a lot of us have a a flawed and distorted view of what anger is really all about. And maybe I can help you understand it by explaining this, something I think everyone knows. The more we care about something or someone, the more we are angered when that thing or that person gets damaged. Is that right? See, sometimes people damage our stuff. You know, life happens. Somebody breaks something. And most of the time, it's just, you know, replace it and you move on. But when someone hurts a person that we care about, have you ever noticed the more we care about that person, the angrier we get? And if someone intentionally, deliberately hurts someone that we love, we get angry. In fact, let me put it this way. There are situations where it would be unloving not to get angry. You ought to be angry when your friend is mugged. You ought to be angry when a handicapped person is cheated out of money. Did anybody see the video? It started making the rounds on the news and internet um, of a 93-year-old woman in a store. This is on kind of security cam, and this 26-year-old guy reaches and steals something from her and you know, walks out with her stuff. She's just in a wheelchair, can't do anything about it. That kind of thing ought to make us angry. You ought to be angry if your sister gets raped. You ought to be angry when a child is abused. In fact, you would be an evil person not to be angry at things like this. If you see things like this and you can just shrug your shoulders and go like, no big deal, you're a terrible person. The opposite of love is not anger. It's indifference. God takes our sin seriously because sin harms the people that he loves. And if God didn't get angry at sin, he wouldn't be a loving God. Again, we need to reshape our ideas of anger when it's related to God. See, when God gets angry, it's not because he just gets annoyed easily. When God gets angry, it's not because he's you know, a control freak who always just has to have his own way. When God gets angry, it's not because he's an abusive parent who just flies off the handle in arbitrary fits of rage. God gets angry because he loves people and the people he loves are are being harmed. One person put it this way. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. Hell is the expression of God's anger at sin that's destroying his world and his people. And if God didn't punish sin and evil in hell, then God wouldn't be good. Hell shows us just how seriously God takes evil. Now, maybe at this point, some of you are thinking something like this. You know, Mike, I kind of think I get where you're coming from, but like, 
you know, I've never really done any of those bad things you talked about. Most of the people I know haven't done those things. I've never killed anyone. I've never raped anyone. And like, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but, you know, I'm a pretty good person. And I'm pretty sure the things I've done are not enough to anger God. Most of the people I know are pretty good persons, and I'm pretty sure the things they've done are not enough to anger God. I mean, I get the big stuff that he gets angry, sure, but, but me, the stuff in my life, not, not so much. Well, that's actually a good point to raise. Most of us don't really feel like we're bad people. Most of us feel like we're pretty decent people. But there's an assumption here that I think it would be wise for us to question. Because you don't want to show up before God on that day with an unquestioned assumption and then find out that your confidence was badly misplaced. So let's think about this. Let's just kind of go with some of the big things that most of us agree are right and wrong. The big things that God asks us to do, the best place to look at those is actually God's top 10 list. You know, we know them, the 10 commandments. And let's just kind of check out a few of those and see how we're doing. Does that sound fair? How about this one? One of those commandments is do not lie. Who here has never lied? Uh, you could raise your hand if that's you. Go ahead in front of everybody. Just commit the sin right now. Uh, you can do it. You could do it. How about do not steal? Ever take anything ever that didn't belong to you? Or how about honor your father and mother? Just think about every rolled eye, every shouting match, every behind-the-back comment. And I'm not just talking about children and teenagers, because most adults that I know have a really hard time honoring mom and dad. And all the people said, See, it's just truth, isn't it? Do not covet your neighbor's stuff. Now, that happens in some places, but it never happens in suburbs like Tracy, does it? <laughs> or how about do not commit adultery? You know, the stats say that many of you have or will commit adultery in your life. But even if you have it, Jesus says, if you lust after someone, if you fantasize about having sex with someone you're not married to, you have committed adultery in your heart and you are guilty. How about do not murder? Again, Jesus says, if you call your brother a fool, if you hate someone in your heart, then you are guilty of murder. Or how about the big one? Number one on the list, have no other gods before me. Is there anyone here who wants to try to make a claim that you have never, ever, not even one time in your life, put anything, not anything, before God? See, for people who think that we're pretty good, it, it turns out that we're not real great at getting the big stuff right. See, the reason we can fool ourselves into thinking that we are pretty good people is that, is that most of us just kind of live lives of cowardly small sins. Most of us don't sin in big, splashy, out there ways where everybody notices. And I know this is true of me. You see, on the day when the books are opened and you see the real record of my life, I'm going to tell you a little bit of what you'll see. You will see a lifetime of minor snubs and slights against my coworkers and friends and neighbors. You will see petty rivalries and grudges. 
You will hear the cutting words that I said to my wife when no one was listening. You will see the times when I blew up at my kids for no reason. You will see all the ways that I've shirked my responsibilities at work and at home. You will see the secret addictions. You will see all the ways that I've fostered quiet disdain for the people around me. You will see how I've ignored people in need and and I've done nothing when I could have done something to help. You will see my indifference to pain and injustice and suffering in this world. You will see my stinginess. You will see my lack of trust, the way that I bend the rules to my advantage and then I hold other people to a strict standard. You will see my avoidance of pain, my silence at injustice, all the ways that I work hard to make myself look good at the expense of other people. And you will see a whole lot more than that. You see, day in and day out, all of those little things, all those things that seem like no big deal, on that day before God, they will all be shown for what they are a declaration that I am the God of my world, the center of my universe, that I am the most important person that I know, it will be shown to be a life of quiet and steady rebellion against the holy, most high God. See, here's the truth about me. I am not a good person. I want you to look at what John writes. Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Did you read that list? The cowardly, the unbelieving, the sexually immoral, all liars. That's me. And that's all of you. So here's the thing we have to admit if we get honest. Each one of us, every single one of us has contributed to this mass of sin and selfishness that is poisoning God's world. We are part of the problem. And so on that day when Jesus decides what he's going to take from the old world and bring into the new, we're going to have a hard time making a case that we belong. The reality is if God takes evil seriously, we are all in real trouble. And that's actually the reason why the third thing we see here is such good news. Hell also shows us God's goodness because hell shows us just how seriously God takes love. Again, verse 12 says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Thank God for that other book. A little bit later in chapter 21, verse 27, John again writes, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, whose book are we talking about here? Well, it's the Lamb's book of life. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. Now, why is Jesus called the Lamb? He's called the Lamb because he was sacrificed It's called the Lamb's Book of Life because in order for Jesus to write someone's name in that book, 
He had to die for them first. See, here's what happened. This is how the book of life just takes the idea of hell and turns it upside on its head. When Jesus came to earth and died on the cross, this is what took place. He left heaven, a perfect place. He left the joy of his father's presence. He came down to earth to live life with us. And when he was on this earth for the first time ever, someone lived a perfect life. Jesus lived a perfect life as a man. He is the only one who can stand before God and say to the father, yes, I deserve heaven. I believe in the new world. I have never done anything to harm your world or harm your people. Yes, God, I am worthy. He's the only one who can say that. Jesus is the only one who never deserved condemnation and punishment. He does not deserve to be cut off from the presence of God. But what is interesting is this. That's exactly what happened to him. On the cross, when Jesus died, he was separated from his father. He took our punishment. He took the death we deserved, and he died that death in our place. This is how the prophet Isaiah describes it, Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The apostle Peter writes these words in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. The innocent one suffers for the guilty so that the guilty can go free. Now, how did Jesus suffer? He suffered the physical death of pain and torture on the cross, but he suffered much, much more than that. He also suffered the spiritual anguish of being cut off from God. Do you remember on the cross when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? The only person who never rejected God, he experiences God's rejection. See, from eternity past, the son knew perfect oneness with his father. Jesus had never been cut off from communion with God, but now hanging on the cross, he is utterly forsaken. He experiences being shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. The apostle Paul's description of hell. On the cross, while Jesus carries the world's sins, the father turns away from him. Jesus experiences the separation from God. That is hell. And this is how great the love of the Father is for us. He sent his only son and his only son left the glory and the joy of heaven so that he could experience the depths of hell for you and for me. See, I know the idea of hell is especially troubling to some of you. It troubles me too. I don't like it either. But in all of our questions about hell and all those things that are unresolved about it, There is one thing that we can never truly say. We cannot say that God created hell and then exempted himself from experiencing it. Do you see? The guy who's sitting on the throne is also the guy who's been to hell. This is the love of God. He took hell so you would not have to. You know, when I hear all of this, here's what it comes down to. The only question I think that matters at this point is this. How will you respond to a love like that? See, the way to benefit from what Jesus has done is 
is for us to simply say to God, God, I know I can't do it. I know I can't make it on my own, and so I'm going to trust you. The way to experience this is to be able to pray to the Father. God, I know on that last day when I stand before you, I will never deserve to be with you. I know that I will never make it on my own. The only way that I have any hope is if you forgive me. And I I believe that, that you forgive me through Jesus. I need Jesus to stand in my place. And so God, I ask you for my forgiveness. And I, I give myself to you and I trust you with my life and with my eternity. God, will you take me? See, really, that's all that it takes. Some of us need to get to the place where we finally get that there is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. Some of you have been working all your life. You tried so hard. And the truth is, you've been deceiving yourself into thinking that somehow, some way, you're gonna be good enough. The Bible says no. No one is good enough. But the good news is you don't have to be good enough. There's already one. There's already one good enough. And his name is Jesus. And he loved you enough to die for you. See, in the end, the only difference between a Christ follower and someone who's not a Christ follower is that we say as Christ followers, I know I'm not a good person. I know I don't deserve heaven. I know that only Jesus is good, and so I trust him with my life. That's the only difference. So what will you do? How will you respond? Remember, God doesn't force us to spend eternity with him if we don't want to be with him. But here's a good question to think about. If God is the sort of God who would take hell and death for you, if he loves you that much, why wouldn't you want to spend your life and all eternity getting to know him? I mean, if he's that good, why wouldn't you want to be with him forever if he's that full of grace and mercy and kindness? What would keep you from loving a God like that? Now, again, as I talked about at the beginning of the message, we're here in different places on our spiritual journey, and, and some of you are guests, and maybe this is your first time here, and maybe this is your first time you've ever heard anything like this explained, and maybe you have questions. It's good to have questions. I, I just want to encourage you today to not leave this place without asking some questions. I'm here to talk with you Our other pastors are here. Maybe the friend who brought you would be the person you need to talk to. But don't leave without asking those questions. Maybe others of you have been around for a while and this isn't the first time you've heard these kind of truths and maybe you're pretty uh, far along the process of knowing what Jesus has done. But despite that, maybe you've been dragging your feet. Maybe you've been kind of putting things off. And I'm not trying to pressure you in any way today. I just want to give you a loving warning. You don't have forever. Eternity will arrive one day, and it often comes sooner than we expect. The end will come, and time will be out. And my question really is, what are you waiting for? This is too important just to kind of sit on your hands. And then there are those of us here, and we're Christ followers. And maybe we've been following Christ for a long time. 
And maybe we're people who love this message of God's grace. It's so good. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a moment. And this afternoon, we're going to celebrate baptism, these beautiful pictures of people going from death to life, God rescuing people from their sins. And we love all this. And maybe you come every week and you worship God and you sing the songs. You just love to celebrate what God has done. But what's interesting in all of this is that though you believe and enjoy these truths, there's a somehow this thing that's happened where there's not any real urgency in your life to tell other people what you've found. You have family, you have friends, you have neighbors, and you're not telling them about what Jesus has done. I just want to remind you of the stakes, that those people you care about, the only way that they will know Jesus and avoid hell is if someone tells them. And maybe God is calling you to be that someone. Maybe, maybe what God is saying in all of this to each of us is, you can trust me even with your questions. You can trust me even with your fears. Even with something as hard to understand and as frightening as hell, it shows to us the goodness of God It shows us how seriously God takes people, how seriously he takes justice. It shows us how seriously he takes love. Jesus Christ has come to this earth. He has showed us who the Father is. He has died in the cross for our sins. God has raised him again from the grave. He lives today, and he will one day come back and judge the world. Will we be ready to meet him when that day arrives? That's the question that's before us. God calls us to fear him. He's a good God and he loves us, but he's not safe. So fear him. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father, we want to thank you for a day like this that we have to celebrate, a day when we can take communion together, a day, Lord, when people are being baptized, when they are declaring before everyone that they belong to you, that you are their God. And Lord, I just want to give you thanks for all those that are stepping forward today. Lord, I want to thank you also for those who are making decisions even now, and maybe they came here today not planning to do this, but you have spoken to them and they know that they need to be baptized today. We just pray for them that you give them courage and strength. Lord, we also want to thank you for your truth. To hear what you tell us about hell is a hard message, Father, but we thank you for loving us enough to tell us what the stakes are. And and Lord, I just want to pray for those who have still not crossed the line and just ask that you would give them grace to see you, give them courage to trust you. Lord, if, if they are here even now wondering what they can do, then help them see that all they need to do is turn from their sins in repentance and turn to you in faith. God, we know that we are all sinners and we don't deserve anything from you, but we also believe that in Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness if we trust him. We have new life and hope. And so we we ask you um, to work in our hearts. Lord, I pray also if, if you have put on on hearts here 
the call to share your good news with someone that you would grant courage and that you would grant wisdom and that you would even prepare hearts ahead of time that when we, we go and speak to our friends and our, our family members that you would already be moving in their hearts and that they would be thirsty to hear this message and so we would be, be like people bringing water to dying people. God, I just pray that you would be at work in each one of us in this church all through this day. May your name be glorified in everything we do. And we pray all these things, Father, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.